Consult is a monthly podcast about software developers who work on Apple platforms to create client products. Join us each month as we talk business, Swift, Objective-C, contracts, App Store, and all things Apple. I'm your host, David Kopeck. Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 18 of Consult. I've got a fantastic interview with beloved member of the iOS and Mac development community, Daniel Steinberg, which I think you're really going to enjoy. I also have a special offer for listeners of this podcast. You can get 50% off my new book, Classic Computer Science Problems in Swift, on manning.com using promo code PCCOPEC, P-C-K-O-P-E-C. It's a fantastic book for experienced programmers who are just getting into Swift or want to expand their knowledge of computer science. And it's also a fantastic book for intermediate programmers, programmers who are just learning computer science or know programming but want to deepen their computer science knowledge, all in the language they love, Swift. But let's get to my fantastic interview with Daniel Steinberg. My guest today is a really loved member of the iOS and Mac dev community, acclaimed author, speaker, podcaster, and consultant, Daniel Steinberg. Daniel, thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, thanks for asking me. Daniel, with most guests, I say, I want to go back and hear about how you first got into computing. You have such an interesting career. I want to go back and hear about your entire beginnings. Let's go back to where you're (laughs) from and where you went to college and your early career, even in academia. Oh my gosh, how much time do you have? (laughs) So I grew up in Oberlin, um, Ohio, where Oberlin College is from. And my dad was a a professor and my mom was a first grade teacher. And I really think that that split really gave me a love for teaching at every level. And so I think in in everything I've done since then, I look at storytelling as teaching as being sort of central. And so I I went off to uh, Brandeis to become a high school math teacher and also fell in love with radio and bounced between the two of those and ended up getting a PhD in math and teaching college math. And then, you know, given the way the field was, I started learning how to program and just ended up here. Well, take us through the steps. How'd you get here after college, after graduate school? So I didn't go straight from college to graduate school. I taught high school and then I worked as a radio DJ um, in a variety of formats. And along the way, I missed mathematics. So I started putting myself through my master's and then my, my PhD uh, my PhD was at Case, and wow. then I taught at Oberlin College and John Carroll for a while, and it was just a really tough time. But meanwhile, it was the beginning of Java, and and there's just a lot of fun things happening in the programming world. People were beginning to look at, you know, extreme programming and and collaborating a little bit differently. And the things that resonated with me in teaching seemed to be coming to to programming as well, working in groups and and thinking about these feedback cycles. How does you go from Java into the Mac community? Where did that transition happen? And I know you're also very involved in Java.net. So if you could tell us a little bit about that as well, that would be very interesting. Sure. So uh, I got into Java at version 1.02, but my favorite computer was the Mac. And I don't know how far back you go, but Java on the Mac always lagged. And so I complained to my sister, who was an editor at Java World Magazine, and she said, you know what? We could use somebody in that beat. And so I started writing about Java on the Mac. At a certain point, uh, you know, I broadened and became interested in the community. And O'Reilly, the, the computer book company, brought me in to launch Java.net. It was a three-way partnership with O'Reilly and uh, Sun Computing. And CollabNet wrote the, the sort of the back end, the group 
collaborative side. And so I was the editor of Java.net back in when it was just so exciting. We, you know, we grew to half a million users really quickly and it was a lot of conversation happening. It was a really fun time. So more than most people, you really know the history of Apple's relationship with Java. If I remember in the classic Mac, they were kind of stuck on Java 1.1 for a long time. And then um, we finally got to OS 10. Finally, we got newer versions of Java. But Apple was kind of doing their own release for a long time. Uh, and then more recently, Sun has taken that over. Um, what were kind of the interesting points in the relationship between uh, Apple and Java? One of the things I think people forget is when Steve Jobs came back to Apple, he gave a very interesting speech at Macworld Boston, and he talked about you know, the things that were important to Apple going forward. And one was that very famous having Bill Gates on the screen and the association with Microsoft. But one of the bullet points was first-class support for Java on the Mac. And so mm -hmm. that was one of the stated points even before there was OS X. Then as you go on, if, if you look at Apple pretty consistently, what they've done with the web browser, with pretty much everything, they don't want to depend on other people's technology, that that's a dangerous place for them to be. So even chips on the iPhone, uh, as I said, the browser, uh, getting rid of Flash, just they didn't want to be dependent on other people's timeframes and life cycles. So in the early days of Java on the Mac, actually, there were people from Sun who were on loan to Apple to help you know, bring it to parity, but Apple was always behind because how could you not be? Right, right. That makes sense. And then there was the whole Java Cocoa Bridge, right? And there was a lot of excitement around that, but it didn't really pan out. Yeah, it's interesting because Java's whole um, selling point was write once, run anywhere. But in reality, people were using Java and writing just Windows only apps. So that Java Cocoa Bridge, the apps that were coming out still. Uh, were very Microsoft and Windows centric. They, they looked pretty ugly on the Mac. And you can even see uh, some pretty famous uh, apps right now that are written in Java, and they just don't look native to the Mac. They're still on it now, like, you know, AppCode. App sure. AppCode is basically a Java app, and it, it looks and feels like a Java app. And that's okay because it's for developers, and, you know, we don't have any taste anyway. Right, right, right. So when do you make the transition from Java to Cocoa? So, a couple of people uh, took me aside and, and said very quietly to me that if, if you want to stay on the Mac, you're going to need to learn Objective-C. You need to come a away from Java. And they really extended my career by many, many years. And so I was lucky enough to come over and, and really delve deep into Objective-C. And then two years later, the iPhone was released. And, and fortunately, I'd had some time in the language and on the platform. So they did me a huge favor. So this is the 2005 through 2007 about time period. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, I believe you. Yeah. Um, so how did you get into consulting? How did you become a consultant? I know you've worked, uh, had clients that are some very large companies. So I've been very lucky in so many things that I've done. And so about the time I started writing for, for Java.net, things were changing in, in being a faculty member. And in order for me to continue being a faculty member, I would have had to move my family. And I decided it was more important to keep my kids near both sets of grandparents than for me to continue as a mathematician. So I changed and, and started consulting in computers back in 2000. So this has been 17 years of being out on my own, and it's been great. Wow, wow. Uh, so tell us some of the early stories back in the early 00s. Uh, who were your first clients? How did you get those those first contracts? 
So uh, some of them don't exist anymore, but uh, you know, a lot of them were, were media related. So as I say, I, I did the Java.net editing for O'Reilly. Uh, I worked for Developer Works for IBM for a while. Uh, so I got to, to work with some really smart, really well-connected people. And I got to say, life is just keeps being lucky in that way. I've got to work with some great people that took the time to teach me the ins and outs, because for the most part, I'm self-taught in computers. And mm-hmm. so I had a lot of nervousness about, well, how do real programmers do this? And I found out that they would show you. You, know, you work, you're work next to them and they'll show you. Do you find the math background helps? I do. And it's really interesting. I've been thinking about this a lot, especially as we move to functional programming and thinking about Swift. I don't know if you've seen a lot of the discussion around category theory and some abstract algebra with monoids. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of these basics from from graduate level and, and undergraduate level mathematics are seeping their way into being foundational for functional programming. And so instead of a book on category theory for computer scientists, I've been thinking maybe it's time to write a book on category theory for just computer programmers, just so that we can see a very practical approach to what we do. That makes total sense to me. Now, you also have had these other interests in television, radio, podcasting. How did all that come about? You know, misspent youth. <laughs> Uh, I, my first time on the radio was, was when I was in first grade. My first grade teacher's son had a radio show, and I would go on and read weather reports. And I just I fell in love with audio more than video, that you can connect with people in this deep way. And there's something about the voice that connects you to character and feeling, and you can dig deeper on some topics. And so I've always loved the voice. When did you first get into book writing? Because you also had a stint in the publishing industry. And you continue to. So this is, again, my, my sister. I was very lucky. I was writing for her. And she said, you know, I know this book editor. And they're having trouble with authors with the Java 2 Bible. They had a couple authors drop off. And she said, if you want to write six of the chapters. And so I signed up for six chapters. And then another author dropped off. So I wrote 12 of the chapters and fell in love with it. Because I don't know if you remember. I don't know your age or your background, but (laughs) in the early days of computer books, because we didn't have online, because we didn't have cheap resources, a lot of computer books were just listing APIs and then simple examples. Mm -hmm. Now that you could get APIs online, the whole idea with the Java 2 Bible's direction, the editor was very prescient and said, you know, don't regurgitate the stuff they can find somewhere else. Tell them how they can use it. How does it, you know, what is it that, that makes sense to them? Tell them the whys, not just the hows behind it. And so uh, after the Java 2 Bible, I wrote a couple other books and then ended up working with the pragmatic programmers. And they were very big on the hero's journey where the, the reader is the hero and you're, you're taking them on this journey and giving them bigger and bigger tools to deal with bigger and bigger monsters. And that's something I've taken to heart. I really love their approach. Tell us about the books you're working on right now. So I'm updating the... Uh, Swift Kickstart to Swift 4, and my commitment is that I will keep updating it for free as long as I can. Uh, I'm writing a a sort of functional Swift book. I'm thinking of this category theory for computer scientists, and uh, as if that's not enough, uh, I'm working on a kid's book. Oh, wow. And then I've always wanted to write a book on calculus, and, and finally I'm returning to that idea. So these are things that I'm just kicking around with and bouncing from one to the next and having a blast. Is the kid's book a programming book or is it a general kid's book? So there's a kid's programming book. Some of the things that um, made me first fall in love with programming and teaching programming 
where the the turtle logo stuff that Pappert did, I mean, he he did it starting in the 60s. And so when I was teaching in the, the late 70s, early 80s, we were doing, doing turtle logo in the classroom. And it's still such a wonderful uh, framing for this. And I'm wondering, can we teach even functional programming that way? You know, it's hard to compete with free, yep. but I, I have enough issues with some of the the other curriculum that say Apple is giving away for free for kids that I still think there's a place for this. I have to dive into that. What are your issues with uh, what they're putting out there? <sighs> this is the category of I'll never work again, huh? You, you don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I, actually, I've, I've written about it. I really love Swift Playgrounds. I love the the platform they've given us. A couple things that I'd like from it is, one, I'd like for teachers and educators to be able to sell books in that platform. If everything we produce we have to give away, that doesn't encourage people to do a lot of work in that world. Right. And then the second thing is the learn-to-code to curriculum it's, I, I, have you played with it much? A little bit, yeah. To me, a lot of the things that we do when we code is we make mistakes and we say, oh, we did that wrong. How do we fix it? And their learn to code approach, if you send the monster over the cliff, the monster doesn't go over to the cliff. It walks up to the edge and it just stands there. And so you don't learn to recover from mistakes. And I think kids would be delighted that if they sent the monster over the cliff, it fell to its painful death and they had to start again. That you know, makes sense to me. That, you know, you only go five steps forward, not six. So right. if you tell the monster to go six steps forward, turn left and go four steps forward, and it couldn't go that many steps forward, it won't fall off. You can give it wrong instructions and it will do the right thing. And that's not what programming is. So how does the approach in your kid's book differ? Uh, immediate feedback. The kids can play with parameters. The kids can uh, even build the environment that they're working in. You know, you look at this beautiful, rich environment that Apple has given us with the waterfalls and the 3D-ness. Kids see that and they say, well, how do I build one of those? And they can't. But the world that I have them work in, at the end of the book, we look behind the covers. And I've done this in a workshop all over the world with kids. And our last step is we open up and look at the code and they look at it and say, oh, I can do that. I've been doing that for all morning. Right, right, right. Now, your other book, A Swift Kickstart, which has been a big success, why do people choose to read that book instead of the book that uh, Apple puts out for free about Swift? Because they're so darn nice. <laughs> uh, what It's again, every book has to choose an audience. And one thing is, it's not that Apple's book isn't great. It is a great book. But the other thing that I can do is I don't have to tell you the whole truth. And sometimes it's easier to learn if I expose in bits what the whole truth is, so I don't have to tell you everything at once, where Apple can't write something that will eventually not be correct. So for instance, when you were little, you were told you can't take the square root of a negative number. And then at some point you learned about imaginary numbers and learned that, oh, you can, it's just taking you into this other world. Mm -hmm. You know, this is bigger domain. Well, Apple can't tell you something like, Yes, you can't take the square root of a negative number if it turns out later you can. And so they're constrained by the truth. The other thing is um, I picked my audience very carefully. I'm writing for experienced programmers who are new to Swift. And so that also pairs it down, and I know who my audience is. And so they've got to talk to a broader audience that's coming from many different um, places. That makes perfect sense, and that's the kind of fill-in that the Swift ecosystem needs as it expands, right? We need intermediate-level books, not just beginner books. 
I think so. And that's why, you know, when I talk to new authors, the first question I ask is, who are you writing for and what is it you want them to be able to do at the end of this? Right, right, exactly. Um, as an author myself, I, I totally feel that and I think there is too much me too in the, uh, in the publishing industry. Let's talk a little bit about training because that's a big part of your consulting practice, right? Training. Um, how did that start? So I've always loved to teach. There's something magical about seeing the students in the room get something. Even right now, I, I do this intro to Swift, even people with some Swift experience at the end of the day will say, well, I never thought about it that way, or I didn't know we could do this. And so I used to buy cookbooks. I'm, I'm, I love to cook. And my wife and I would argue about it. And finally, she said to me, okay, if you get one recipe from a cookbook, I'm good. And I sort of think about that in training is if you come away with just a handful of things and that day was worth it to you, it doesn't mean that everything I say has to resonate, but there's going to be some things I say that you'll take away and do all the time. What kind of organizations have been uh, using you for training? So uh, I used to do a lot of public training. Uh, I used to train through Pragmatic Studio, which isn't part of Pragmatic Programming. It was Mike and Nicole Clark. They're now doing more videos now. I loved working with them. And so I don't do as much public. Sometimes before conferences, I'll do a day or two. And so what happens is uh, a company will have a team that needs training or a big company will have several teams that need training and they'll bring me in to do anything from one day to two a week. How much can you cover in one day versus a week? So again, it's very focused. It depends on who the group is. I just trained a group of people who were experienced in Swift and they wanted to really dig into the functional aspects. And so given that, we were able to dig in and do quite a bit in a day. What you find out in a week is what the way my course, I believe in story arcs, so I write like a, a movie. And so these skills that you get in the first couple scenes, these things you see in the first couple days will come back. And so we'll talk about Swift for two days and then we'll start programming iOS, and you'll find out that, oh my goodness, I do view controllers differently because Swift is different than Objective-C. So we're not just writing that same obc code in a different language. We're re-architecting. We're thinking about it differently. That makes sense. Now, I want to ask you one of my standard questions. Tell us about a horror story. You don't need to name any names. We don't need to hear who the client was or what the app was in your consulting career. So a project that maybe went way over budget or a project that went um, just downhill in terms of communication and why did it happen and did it recover? So I've been really lucky. Uh, I've only had once where I had an issue with payment and it was a client who had decided that they were now going to only pay people uh, electronically mm -hmm. and they've been paying by check for years. And at the time I just didn't want to change with them. And uh, they got quite angry and I said, you know, I'm not litigious. I'm not going to sue you for it. You owe me money and you'll either pay me or you won't. And that's as bad as it got. They, they paid me, but you know, there's no reason to get angry about things. It wasn't, it was a disagreement, but it wasn't, I don't think any disagreement. If you step back, isn't that big. What are the most important elements of client communication? Making sure they have clear expectations. So, uh, you know, computer programmers go through this all the time where the management comes in and says, we need you to do this. How long is it going to take you? And you say three months and they say, great. And we also need it to do this and we need it in two months. And you go, wait, wait, wait. And so it's the same thing in training. I recently had a company ask me to come in and do my two day training. And then they had two days worth of material they wanted me to add to it and still do it in two days. <laughs> and I said, maybe we can do it in three days, but we can't do it in two. 
And so they went and found somebody who would say, yes, I'll do it in two. And I'm good with that. You know, if I'm not going to be able to make you happy, then we shouldn't be working together. I want you to be so excited at the end of our engagement that you want to bring me back. Now, we talked about your most horrifying project, and it wasn't really that horrifying. Uh, tell us about your the one, again, we don't need to name names of the client, but tell us about the best project and why it went so great and what was so gratifying about it. So the thing I love most about training, and you, you keep asking for specifics, and I'm lucky enough that these things happen all the time, is I'll get this group of people and they'll say, but why don't we look at it this way? And we just go off in that direction. We work together and I've got this incredibly intelligent group of people and they don't mind that we're exploring together and I end up learning more and they learn more and we're on this journey together and that's that's kind of exciting. So I love when I train a bright group of people who are patient enough and, and calm enough that you know, you're going to make mistakes as a trainer. And I hate the, the, the teacher from high school that would say, oh, I was just testing you and they make a mistake on the board. It's the same as a trainer. I'm not testing you. I made a mistake. Now let's see what we do. Absolutely. Now, you've been very active in the podcasting world, both as an editor, as a producer, as a host. How have you seen that world evolving over the last few years? It's really changed a lot. So the first podcast I did was for O'Reilly uh, Tim O'Reilly used to quote William Gibson, who used to say, uh, the future's here, it just isn't evenly distributed. So we did a podcast probably in that same time frame you were talking about called Distributing the Future, where we took uh, speakers at O'Reilly conferences and O'Reilly authors and different websites. And I would do it because I came out of radio. I would do it like a radio guy. And finally, one of my listeners wrote me a, a note and he said, you're driving me nuts you don't have to, in a podcast, remind me who you are, what you're listening to. It's not a radio station where I've tuned in or out. I know what I'm listening to. You don't have to keep saying, this is so-and-so and you're listening to. So getting rid of that radio training and watching podcasting evolve to becoming its own entity uh, and, and understanding that people listen to podcasts differently than they listen to radio. So that was a big evolution for me and for the, for the medium. For those thinking about getting into podcasting, what are your number three top tips, let's say. So it's the same thing I used to tell people that wanted to get into radio. If you're doing it for the money, uh, that's probably the wrong motivation. If you're doing it because you love it and you have something to say to somebody, then that's great. Is what you're saying something that is emotional or character or what we're doing now, a conversation between two people, or is it something that would be better served as video? So many videos would be fine without the visual component of it. And so I love that you're doing this audio podcast. It's very comfortable. People can listen to it on the go. Uh, people don't listen to podcasts as their primary activity, whereas people watch videos. They're not usually doing other things. And so remembering as you start your podcast, why are you doing it? And as people wander, because they have real lives, how do you bring them back into the conversation? How do you reset and remind them what's going on and, and you know, bring them back in for the next part? Now, you're a very in-demand speaker at conferences. How did that get started? That's, again, I've been really lucky. Uh, I had a theater background as well. And um, I, I always was bothered by speakers who were speaking about themselves and to their friends. And so to me, I, I try to think very hard about who the audience is for this talk and what is it I want them to leave with. And so one of the things I'm not very good at 
is I will start the talk right away on topic. I won't spend a lot of time of who I am and where I come from and where you can hire me. I'll just start talking about the subject. And so I don't know that that's a good business practice, but uh, it, it has helped me become a, a asked-for speaker. I've really enjoyed watching some of your talks over the years. I wanted to talk about a couple recent ones in particular. Um, first, you. the one that, that just came out, Why the Funk? Tell us about the synthesis of that. Um, where, where was the goal for the audience in Why the Funk? So uh, do you remember Calculus Newton's method? Sure. So Newton's method, for people that don't remember, is you're trying to figure out where a function crosses the x-axis. And the way Newton's method works is you make a guess nearby, and then you follow the tangent line down to the x-axis, and that's your next guess. And so the idea is you get closer and closer to the truth. And that's kind of how I felt about functional programming, is I thought I knew what MAP was, and then last year I thought I knew better what MAP was, and this year now I think I know more. And what's helped me get there is not the how we do functional programming, but the why. Why are these, these patterns, why do they exist and why do they keep coming up? So the why the funk was to try to give people the, the understanding of why do we do di things differently in functional programming than in OO, and how are they really the same? Because if you look at them from a different perspective, uh, we really are doing that same amount of data hiding and, and communicating, but we're doing it in different ways. Now you had a talk a few years ago with a very interesting title. It was The Ugly American Learned Swift. I remember it very distinctly. Um, why the title? And again, what were you trying to get across in that talk? I think that is my favorite talk I ever gave. So I, I really thank you for mentioning that. Uh, the idea was Swift was new and everybody that came at it from a different language would say, oh, look, it's, it's this. And then the next thing they would say is, but it's not a very good this. And so first they'd say, oh, it's functional programming, but it's not very good. And the Ruby people come at it and go, oh, it's just like, no, nah, it's not. And so the idea was, instead of being that, that ugly American tourist who goes to Paris and looks for all the American things and misses all the things that Paris has, we should go to Swift and see what it is that Swift gives us. And one of the really nice things is now that Apple has opened up that world and is accepting submissions from the community, we can help shape Swift. So as we live in this country, we can help shape it to be more like the country it wants to be. Is there an analogy there to Americans abroad? Where, where does the ugly American part come in? So the story I told at the beginning was the, the American who goes to France and you know, passes cafe after cafe and ends up at a Starbucks. And then when he goes home, he tells everyone, oh, it's the same as it is here. So I want to ask you some general overview questions. I apologize if these are kind of large in scope. How do you feel about the direction that Swift is currently going in, the Swift 4 release and where we see it heading in the next couple of years? So I really love what they've done, including, I don't know if you've noticed, but they've decided that some of the movement they made in the past they need to undo, that some of the decisions they made aren't sitting right now that they're writing code. And I think one of the things we're seeing is as Apple starts writing their own apps in Swift, they're getting more experience in Swift as a language they're writing in, not just as a language they're designing and, and pushing out to the rest of us. And so I think that's been very positive. The community has some very uh, vocal people who say, we'd like to see it do this. And I think you're seeing both the conversation and the direction of Swift going in a very positive direction. Uh, the frustration to some is, 
it's moving slower than they expected it would. But I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Why don't you think that's a bad thing? Well, because we get experience before we just include a bunch of things that on paper we think would be good. We get to see, well, maybe we can do these things already in a way that that's fine. Uh, there's been discussion lately about the double exclamation point, mm-hmm. and people have said, well, if we get a bottom type, then we don't need a double exclamation point. We can do it this way. And people have argued on the other side, and it's been a very rich discussion back and forth about the reasons that even if we get this thing, and so they're looking to the future, and it's not that we're just hedging against a future, even with the future, some people have argued why we want this thing. And it's it's been, I think, very positive. And what's nice for me is I get to go back and look at these discussions and see, oh, that's why we do it this way. Now, you have a background in math, and you also have a background in Java. Where do you? And obviously, you're interested in writing more about the functional aspects of Swift in your new book. So where do you fall on the divide between Swift should be more functional, Swift should be more object-oriented, dynamicism, all, all of these topics about uh, the paradigm of the language? Where's the right balance? So, I mean, those, those are very different questions, and I, I, I don't know what the answer is. Uh, what I like is that it, people that want it to be a purely functional language, it's not a purely functional language. And so we're not going to have that. And one of the nice things is, you know, Haskell being a a purely functional language, then you need something like Monad so that you can do input and output. Mm -hmm. Whereas we still have a class system, and so we can use these reference types to do input and output, and we can have this, this, as they call it, the functional core. So we have these structs and these enums and these value types in the middle, and then we have these reference types that we use to communicate to our GUI. And that's really nice to have both of them. Uh, what people may be upset with is, well, the system doesn't enforce these things. I don't know. We're, we're kind of grown. <laughs> the dynamicism, it's, that's a big argument for the obc people because we've lost a lot of what obc was, but Swift is a very different language, and the idea of the language is we should know more about what can go wrong at compile time, at time we're writing the code, and not have to wait till runtime to get that, you know, exec bad access or does not respond to selector. And so it is a very different mindset, and we might feel that things have been taken away from us. But if you look at Objective-C, these things have been changing in Objective-C also. So as they were working on Swift, you can see that in Objective-C, alloc init, which used to return ID, now return instance type. And so you're getting a lot more type safety in the obc side of things too. Do you think that the positioning was wrong when Swift was described as Objective-C without the C? I think that people misunderstood what was meant by that. And uh, so you can see this a lot. It's, it's not, it wasn't a refutation of C. It was saying, you know, Objective-C were these things built on top of C. And so we had to distinguish between an NS string and a C string. Whereas Swift strings are just Swift strings. We don't have to distinguish between anything. And so you can see that they've just changed strings yet again in Swift 4. And so, you know, there's, there's a lot of fluidity if you're not bound by being built on top of C. So I'm not sure if the idea was wrong. I think that it didn't communicate what they meant to communicate. How important is ABI stability? Well, there's an awful lot of people that it's going to mean a lot. It's not just the size of your program, but it's this the stability over time. And yet, 
if you look at what Apple's done, it's a genius move over time is, is being able to accommodate all these changes when, when they went from 32 bit to 64, when they went from, you know, uh, power PC to Intel, all these changes, the things that they did with the file system on, on the iPhone transparent to the users. And so a lot of the ABI stuff is going to matter to us, but you feel that you're in pretty good hands as they move towards it. And I'm glad that they didn't freeze it too quickly because that would have taken decisions about the language out of our hands at this point. Having so much experience in Java, did you ever get involved in the Android side? And how do you feel about Kotlin? So you keep combining questions. I don't know <laughs> which ones to answer first. Uh, but so the, the, the Android thing, it's not a religious thing. It's just a, a focus thing. So I tend to focus serially. And so instead of being a generalist, when I was in Java, that was the language I was focused on. I didn't think about other languages. And then you know, when I moved to OBC, so I'd rather go deep than broad. And there are other people that are really good at going broad. And so when I moved to OBC into the iPhone and Android came along, it would have been very easy to do that. Just like when I was doing uh, Java, it would have been very easy to do C Sharp in the beginning because they were so similar. And, and the .NET world and the Java worlds weren't that different. But I just find I like to focus. As for Kotlin... I mean, it's, it's fascinating. That's, that's very, it's very, um, what, what's the right word? Emblematic of the difference between the, the Google world and the Apple world. Apple is controlling everything all the way down. And someone is stepping into the Google world and saying, you can now develop for this Android platform using a language that is not Google's language. Right, right. That's, that's big. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I can't don't, even don't wait for the announcement that Kotlin for iOS is coming. <laughs> I can't even imagine that happening in uh, any Apple development platform. And yet, when you look at the LLVM, the LLVM is built to support other languages, right? Because they mm -hmm. all compile down to that same bytecode. Yep. So let's talk a little bit about um, working with clients of different sizes, because you've had some of the largest corporations that you've worked with, and I imagine you also have uh, small companies or even individuals. What's the difference between working with a large corporation versus a small organization as a consultant? It, that's a great question. It's often the people that I'm are trying to bring me in either to write code or they're having trouble navigating the structure of their corporation too. They can't figure out, well, who do we have to get you to so we can bring you in? And so it's just that the infrastructure in these big companies, they're built to work with other big companies a lot of the time. And so uh, some of it's, it's very funny, the things that they make you do and the insurance they make you get. And some of it's just silly. Uh, but, you know, there, there's some big companies that, that they want you to give them special discounts if they pay you on time. And you go, really? <laughs> to pay me on time? Whereas one of the, there were so many things I mentioned working for Mike and Nicole Clark for the, the Prague studio. Mm -hmm. They did so many things nice. And one of them was when you taught a public class and you walked in for the last day, your check for the week would be on the desk at the start of that last day. Hmm. You know, they remembered what it was like to be a small person. And so they, they wanted to make sure they treated you right. And they were just wonderful. Uh, that's just not in a big company. It's not that they don't want to do that. They just don't have the ability to do that. 
How have your varied interests in radio, television, publishing, authorship, software development synthesized themselves into some of the projects that you've worked on? I think everything informs each other. And so there are things that you learn in one. Uh, I, I used to love a show uh, called Inside the Actor's Studio, and Paul Newman was the first guest. And one of the things he said was, if you always make a point by shouting, then you can't make a point by shouting. And if you always make a point by whispering, like you have to vary what you do. And bringing that back into teaching and speaking and realizing that if you're giving a 45-minute talk, the audience has to laugh for some of it. They've got to be moved from other part of it. They've got, you've got to vary what you do. And then I worked in restaurants for a while and watching what it took to bring all of the dishes for a meal out at the same time with all the different stations working together and communicating, like all these things inform you in the other aspects of your life. And so I, I love that I, I wasn't just part of one community because I've learned so much in different communities. Do you come onto a project for a client with an opinionated code style? So has it ever happened that you want to write a project in, let's say, a functional style and the client doesn't really like that? I mean, if you're part of any team, that's going to happen and you've got to respect the culture. You know, it, if you've got a good reason for pushing things your way, you can encourage them and explain to them why. But at the end of the day, it's, it's their project and they're the client. You get to decide if you still want to work for them, but they get to decide if they want you to work for them. So, you know, it's, it's both sides. And so if there's something I can bring to you and encourage, I came on a project where it was thousand line methods and 10,000 line classes. And I said, we got to start pulling <laughs> this apart. And I was lucky we had a guy on, on the project who was a Perl programmer. And because it was obc, he was able to parse header files and look at all the interrelations and give us an omni-grapple map of them, and we could rip things apart piece by piece. But it was all of us sort of working together to do things that they'd wanted to do anyway. But in some projects, without testing, backing them up, you wouldn't dare touch that code. That makes sense. Absolutely. Do you ever miss academia? All the time. It's, it's one of the things I miss a lot. And Boy, I, in some ways, I'd love to go back to it. I'm very envious of what you get to do because you get to touch that and other things. Well, what do you miss most about it? Uh, the students. You know, getting a chance to turn a, a student on to a topic that I chose this as my life's career. Why wouldn't I want to take a freshman and show them what it is that interested me? I didn't. I love teaching the upper level courses, but I also love taking someone who is just beginning and showing them this is why mathematics speaks to me. I do want to go a little off topic now. Tell us about the calculus book you're thinking about creating. Many, many, many years ago, I wanted to write a pop-up book of calculus. And hmm. that, ship, that ship has sailed. And then there was a time where I was uh, contracted to write the headfirst book of calculus and started doing it, but a family tragedy intervened and I didn't, uh, wasn't able to continue that book. But I've always had this sort of desire. I don't think the problems after teaching calculus for many years, the problems people have with calculus doesn't tend to be with the calculus. It's with the pre-calculus. Calculus itself are some very small number of really pretty ideas, and I just love to try to communicate those. Mm -hmm. I know the world doesn't need another calculus book, but 
I think it does. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Working with uh, college first-year students, I I think it does. Um, So I want to ask you about what's next for you. So you've been doing um, so many disparate things in your career. Is this where you see yourself five years from now, continue to work on so many disparate um, areas, or do you want to focus in on something in the next few years? I really love the training, and I hope I get to continue with that. Uh, I believe strongly, though, that what makes me a good trainer is every once in a while I take time to to work on a real shipping product, too. And so I, I hope that I will still be attractive to companies where they'll bring me in to write code and where they'll bring me in to train. Otherwise, I'll just be you know a guy rocking on the corner saying what I used to be. <laughs> Um, is there anything that you want to plug on the show? Maybe one of the books that's coming out? Um, I'd love people to check out the Thinking and Swift book. If you own it already, you're going to get a free update. Uh, I'm, I'm looking at what's new in Swift 4 and incorporating it and trying to decide, do I have to teach it differently? Uh, if you'd like to play along with me with the functional book, I'd love to have people as, as tech reviewers. Uh, one of the nice things is I mainly self-publish now. And so I have a development editor and a copy editor and a designer but I have wonderful people who work along with me and do tech review, and that's been very helpful. You have a lot of experience in the publishing industry. Why did you decide to become a self-publisher? Over the years, uh, publishers did less and less for you. And so in the original early days, they did the typesetting. They did, and now you're basically delivering them camera-ready or in their format so they can just push a button They used to promote. Now when you ask them about marketing, they tell you, well, you should do blog posts and come on podcasts. And you think, well, but what are you doing for your percent? And meanwhile, they weren't looking at uh, companies like Amazon started squeezing them from the other end. So they're getting less and less. And so I don't know if you saw recently O'Reilly announced they're not even going to sell print books anymore. Yeah, that was shocking. Yeah. And so, you know, that world is changing. So I originally said, if I'm only going to do online books, then I want to do things that I can't do in paper. The problem is uh, people still like to buy books through publishers. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they trust publishers. And also to sell to Kindle. Kindle doesn't uh, allow me to embed video, so I can't do video and then do both Kindle and iBooks. Um, so I have to decide, am I going to be iBooks only or am I going to support Kindle? Same thing with math. You can do math, math typesetting, very pretty math typesetting in iBooks. Kindle doesn't support it yet. I see. Yeah, that, that's a major issue going forward. So how can people reach you? What's your Twitter? Uh, how do you like to be reached? And is there a website where everyone can find all your books? I know there is. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I'm dim sum thinking pretty much everywhere online. That's my Twitter. My w- website is dimsumthinking.com. Uh, if, if you need to reach me, there's an email address there, just inquiries at, love to hear from people. And, you know, hopefully I'll see you at a conference or, or on the road sometime this year. So Daniel, you've been working as a consultant for a long time. What's the difference in being a consultant versus working for somebody at a regular salary job? So one of the things that I don't know that a lot of people are prepared for when they go out into consultancy is how much of your time you have to spend getting clients and preparing clients and, and letting them know when you can work and, and scheduling around and then billing them at the end. 
and what that means about the time that you actually have available to work for the clients. And so if you want to give the clients a good 40 hours or whatever, you're working a lot of nights and weekends. You're doing a lot of that yourself. And so if you can group together with other people, that's helpful or get someone who's basically agenting you for some fee. That's, that's great too. But just understanding it's more than just doing the work that you would do during the day. Right. A lot of it is client acquisition. Right. And, and that's not insignificant. It's not just the acquisition, but, you know, once you've signed on with, with them, nailing down exactly what you're going to do so that they don't come back and say, well, but I thought this was for this thing. That makes total sense. Is there anything we didn't talk about that um, you'd like to bring up? No, I think you've been great. Daniel, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been a real pleasure. Pleasure's mine. Thanks. Thanks for listening. If you have feedback or you want to recommend a guest on the show, please reach out to me on Twitter. I'm at Dave Kopeck. That's D-A-V-E-K-O-P-E-C. I love to hear from listeners. I also want to remind you that if you want to help the show, if you enjoy the show, please leave us a review on iTunes and recommend us on Overcast. Until next time.